A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Coming at you from above! That's going to make more sense as the episode goes on. Hi guys, this is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Guys, welcome to a puntacular season four of Travel Medicine Podcast. Did you miss us during the sabbatical? I'm sure you did. Well, we are blowing up. This season, Santosh, I was out of the country, as you may know, for most of September. Yeah. And that meant I didn't have internet access, and I didn't know what was going on in the news. <laughs> oh, man. You uh, you must have been so miserable. <laughs> and then I come back, and I learn that President what? Deals yeah. has gotten into a war of words <laughs> with the Rocket Man. <laughs> Burning out fuel out there alone. I was about to say, you've forgotten the lyric, haven't you? I totally did. Shut up. (laughs) Cut that out and post. Cut it and post, damn you. (laughs) Given that this episode is going to be dedicated to radiation sickness, or what kind of things you might see in a nuclear post-apocalyptic wasteland, (laughs) which I hope doesn't happen. Yeah, if... Let me make that abundantly clear. (laughs) This is not a bunker-up conspiracy theory anything. This is just, here are the things we have learned to look for and what you can watch for and how to recognize it. Right. We're we're not going to try to sell you any, like, bunkers or equipment or anything. In fact, uh, if, if any of you are listening to this right now while driving down the desert wasteland while playing a flaming guitar... Hopefully some of these tips will help you keep your skin on. And make sure that you go fast and furiosa. (laughs) Let's get into it. We'll start with just a little bit of history. Do you know who the very first person was to suffer from any kind of radiation poisoning? So wait, it it actually, I'm I'm sure it predated like uh, Madame Curie and her husband by quite a bit. Yeah, so... At least one of the first effects of ionizing radiation were observed when Wilhelm Röntgen 
yes. intentionally subjected his fingers to x-rays in 1895. Wow. Oh, Josh, we should start out by saying, guys, everybody who's listening, we're mostly concerned in this episode with ionizing radiation. So yeah, we'll start with x-rays. Yeah, Rentkin, we still use his name as a measure of radiation to this day. You know, that's the famous picture of the very first x-ray of the hand. Right, with the wedding ring. Accidentally discovered x-rays when he was <laughs> studying the effects of passing an electrical current through gases at low pressure. And that's how he ionized them and created radiation. Right. And the very first, oh, look, Ma. I have bones. <laughs> yeah, those were, that was the very first time he excited a gas so that it produced x-rays. It reminds me of the other great anecdote of the guy who found out that microwaves can heat your food. He was actually a radio antenna uh, specialist who walked by one of his emitters with a candy bar in his pocket, and it melted. In the late 1990s, over a hundred years after Röntgen's first X-ray experiment, somebody found one of these old X-ray machines from the 1890s, and they looked at what is the radiation exposure amount that he would have received. How much did he receive? Over 1,500 times greater than today's dosage. Well, so you're talking about like if we snap an X-ray, like a chest X-ray or something. It's 1,500 of those all at once. Exactly. And part of that's the time exposure. It took this doctor in the 90s about 90 minutes to image the hand using the 19th century machine compared to about 20 milliseconds using the modern X-ray machines. Right. And that has to do with how we've learned to kind of isolate, focus the beam. We've made our readers better. And we've got everything hooked up to computers now so that the computers can often interpolate things such that you don't need like the perfect, perfect, perfect amount of radiation to see it as beautifully as that very first shot of the hand with the wedding ring. Exactly. So Rontgen you know, noticed his hand was glowing, took a picture of it, <laughs> sure. and then said, that's pretty cool, and wrote a paper about the burns that developed, although he misattributed them to ozone. Oh, interesting. So, because he was using those gases, and he was stimulating those gases, so he thought it was just the gas itself, not the radiation coming off of the process. Exactly. Got it. So, now I'm going to jump ahead to when, you know, we really started to learn that radiation was you know, bad for you. <laughs> well, I mean, for a long time, A, we thought it was fine, and then B, there were some medical and non-medical professionals who thought it was actually beneficial. Well, look at pretty much any ad from the 1950s. They're like, doctors smoke this brand, and <laughs> patients are living in a nuclear household, which in those days, didn't mean 2.4 children on a white picket fence, sure. but an actual lump of polonium powering your house. <laughs> I remember that. So you could get bed sheets infused with radioactive elements. They would do that because it would be warming, right? So you'd have like a warming blanket <laughs> with electricity. They would add radium to your water because it was supposed to give you a boost of energy. Things that you can, I think you'd like makeup and stuff like that too, right? You could put you it know, on your skin. 
I'm glad you brought it up because yeah. that's one of the first big radiation tragedies and lawsuits that occurred yeah. in the U.S. Okay. The infamous radium girls. Oh, these were the young ladies who were actually making uh, watches, huh? Yeah, they were female factory workers okay. who contracted radiation poisoning from painting watch dials for the U.S. military with self-luminous paint. And they were all told that, you know, oh, there's no risk. And because it would take too much time to wash the paintbrushes right. in between each use, they were told to just, you know, stick them in their mouth and lick them or suck them to a, a fine tip before resuming painting. Oh, and as a result, a lot of them got necrosis of the jaw. They got yeah. radium jaw. Yeah, yeah. And I think this actually, the same radium jaw happened. Oh, I can't remember the athlete's name who was drinking the radium water. You can find pictures of it. I don't think we're going to post it because they're quite graphic, but essentially their jaws fell off. The athlete you're thinking of was... Eben Byers, and he was a golfing expert. That's the one in yeah, the yeah, early nineteen yeah. hundreds. And he was he was asked to endorse this radium water, and he was he, he used it regularly, saying that oh yeah, it gives me a great boost of energy. Which again, technically true. <laughs> I gotta tell you, so one of my genetics professors, Josh, who was you know he was not too too old. He was maybe sixty. He would tell us that he when he was a child x-rays were so cool that the next big thing was that you could find these x-ray emitters live x-ray viewers in shoe stores so that you could put your shoe on and then you could wiggle your toes and see your toes in the shoe and you could actually see if it fit right and he always joked that if you stand up and you wanted to look down at your toes where would you put the reader and he, he held his hand right at waist level. And the conclusion of his story is that, and well, I went on to have three beautiful children, so I guess it wasn't that bad. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you could find x-rays literally everywhere when they were discovered because it was the next cool thing. It even came up on Futurama one time. Fry and Bender were trying to get the Willy Wonka tour of the Slurm factory oh, yeah. and looking for the golden tab. Right, right. And he, he had an x-ray flashlight. Turns the x-ray flashlight on full blast, shines it on Fry, and Fry goes, ow, my genitals and <laughs> I think the exact line was, ouch, my sperm. Bender turns it on again, and Fry goes, hmm, didn't hurt that time. <laughs> By briefly going over, what are the different kinds of radiation? So... When we're talking about nuclear radiation, there's three main types. So the first is labeled appropriately enough, alpha. <laughs> alpha radiation can be shielded by a sheet of paper or human skin. Right. So very easy to avoid. You know, if alpha particles are inhaled, ingested, or enter through a body cut, then they can cause some damage. But by and large, you're not terribly worried about alpha radiation. Now, the next kind of radiation is beta. Beta radiation, again, it's another type of nuclear radiation, a nuclear particle, and that can still be stopped by skin or a thicker shield. So something like wood. Paper is not going to be thick right. enough. Beta particles can cause serious damage to internal organs if they're ingested or inhaled, and they can cause eye damage or even skin burns. So 
while it's not penetrating full thickness into the skin, you are definitely getting some skin damage. And that's likely what Wilhelm Röntgen suffered. Right. Then we get to everybody's favorite. Hulk smash! Originator. Originator of superheroes around New York. (laughs) There's so much gamma radiation. Oh my gosh. So we were obsessed with gamma radiation in the nuclear age, right? In the 1940s and stuff. So, of course, Marvel... All of their superheroes in that age had some effects of, of gamma radiation. As, as how we're going to talk about it in a medical sense, x-rays are going to be on, you know, a little less severe than gamma rays in terms of how they penetrate. Gamma radiation is the most dangerous out of all the ones we've described because gamma penetrates the entire body. It can cause cell damage throughout your organs, your blood, your bones. And since the radiation itself doesn't stimulate your nerve cells, you may not feel anything while your body is absorbing these lethal doses. And high levels of gamma rays, even for a short period of time, can lead to radiation sickness or death, which is why in a hypothetical apocalyptic situation, it's so critical to seek shelter from fallout in a facility that has very thick shielding. Right. So... I think uh, we have to talk about, because the radiation is being emitted by breakdown of particles, right? But we have to, Mm -hmm. so we have to shield ourselves from the actual electromagnetic waves that are coming out, which we're talking about like um, shorter wavelength than ultraviolet, you know, we're going towards X-ray and gamma rays. But we also have to shield ourselves from the actual particles that are breaking down and emitting. That's, That's actual fallout. Now, in all the old 1950s duck and cover videos. <laughs> all right, fine. We're, we're going to admit this to you. We are both podcasting this from under our desks right now. What should you do if you see a mushroom cloud? <laughs> and, duck and cover. <laughs> so your typical post-apocalyptic nomadic warrior usually has one of two choices as the bomb is going off. One is to head for a shelter if they don't already have one prepared. And the other is in true action movie hero fashion to try and jump in a car or on the back of a motorcycle and outrun the explosion and (laughs) fall out. You just have to be going a significantly faster than the speed of sound to get away from the particle blast. Yeah. Well, because here's the problem. Your ability to know where the radioactive fallout's going to go and to outrun it are highly unlikely because the fallout's being carried by the high-altitude jet stream winds, which are booking along at about 100 miles an hour. <laughs> but it's just so the, – the scene is always so cool of the, you know, the motorcycle just driving off, just staying right ahead of the wake. Before we talk about, like, all the different stages, well, what really matters – is how much radiation an organism is exposed to. This is why fallout shelters and 1950s desks were so important for protection. So we're going to be focusing primarily on uh, superpowers that you'll develop, including elasticity, stone skin, and invisibility. If by those you mean cancer... Oh, Oh, you made it sad. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. We'll, we'll bring it back up in a moment. So what really matters is your absorbed dose, how much radiation you are taking in whenever you're outside. So the way we typically measure absorbed dose is in units called grays or the sievert, which 
a sievert just takes a gray measure and multiplies it by the type of radiation to calculate the effective dose or how much dose is in living tissue. Now, to give everybody a, a point of reference, the average radiation exposure during even just a couple seconds of an abdominal x-ray is point. 0014 grace. It's a light dose, it's local, and it's targeted. So it's not that bad. So we should mention right here, Josh, that there is background amounts of like x-rays and gamma rays just, you know, coming through our atmosphere and being emitted by, you know, particles around us, like everything decays and gives off a small amount of radioactivity. Your banana, for instance, there is a small amount of background radiation at all times and to just give you guys an equivalent of how much radiation you're absorbing when you get that abdominal x-ray think about taking a cross-country flight so that you're up above in the atmosphere and you don't have as much um, atmosphere to shield you from cosmic radiation you're going to get about the same amount of x-rays making that cross-country flight as you do taking a picture of your uh, abdomen, you know, with a single x-ray. Probably in both cases, you'll be just fine throughout your entire life. It can be really difficult to try and keep track of how much radiation you're being exposed to, because unlike your average nuclear technician, we're not all walking around wearing clickers. <laughs> right. So I, you, you, you want to come up with like a real world equivalence? Let's talk about everybody's favorite radioactive fruit, the uh, banana. <laughs> this is a real thing. First off, there's a couple things you have to know. One, Bananas are naturally radioactive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The potassium, specifically. Potassium-40, which is the naturally occurring radioactive isotope, and is not particularly dangerous. So all of you who are listening to this podcast and eating a banana, don't worry, because the amount that you're taking in of that radioactive potassium is very quickly being filtered and replaced by your body's natural systems in order to help people understand the concept of greys and sieverts and others, this one nuclear <laughs> physicist started comparing things to banana equivalent dosages. So, guys, if we're, we're going to start talking about lethal radiation pretty soon here, we're going to start telling you how many bananas worth of radiation it's going to take to harm you. Grab a yeah. bunch of friends and let's get going. <laughs> The radiation exposure from consuming one banana is approximately 1% of your average daily exposure to radiation. And your average daily exposure to radiation is 100 banana equivalent doses. If you eat 100 bananas in a day, that's the same amount of radiation you're going to receive from just walking around outside, sitting on your couch, watching TV, going down to Jamba Juice to get a banana smoothie. <laughs> Day it's not a, it's not a big deal. Oh. <laughs> Let's put this into context now. A hundred banana equivalent right. doses is a daily average amount of radiation. Right. What about the permitted radiation leakage for a nuclear right. power plant? So not full Chernobyl. Sir. So this is for the workers who are there who are being exposed on a regular basis. That's about twenty five hundred banana equivalent <laughs> doses per year. Per year. A simple chest CT right, right. scan delivers 70,000 banana equivalent doses. All right. Quite a bit. Or seven millisieverts. Right. 
a lethal dose of radiation, meaning enough to kill go. you almost on the spot. Hold on, hold on. Drum roll. Dayo. Thirty-five million <laughs> banana equivalent doses is enough to send you to the grave, and you wanna go home. That's a big bunch, man. <laughs> Work all night on a drink of rum. Daylight. Bananas <laughs> come, and I'm gonna go home. <laughs> oh. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally my microceiver. So before we get into the actual radiation sickness, we're going to jump right back into the history, all the way up to, oh, I don't know, let's say the 1940s. Santos, <laughs> can you think of any time when people might have been exposed to radiation? Let's see, this was, uh, this was pre-Beatlemania. Of course, we're, this, this was the terrible bombing of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. So there was a huge population that were affected by the radiation and the fallout, and that's where a lot of our studies on what radiation sickness actually does to people come from. Now, this group in Japan has their own special name. They're known as the Hibakusha, which literally translates as explosion-affected people. Since 1957, all Hibakusha are entitled to government support. They get a certain allowance, uh, including a medical allowance. Santosh, I know you really wanted to mention a very famous double Hibakusha. Imagine this. You're, you're in Hiroshima on a particular day. And you're going to go to work just like everybody else. You know you're at war, but you've got your job to do. So all of a sudden, a massive explosion goes off. And you are burned and you're hurting. You decide, I'm just going to like patch up and get kind of taken care of. And I've got a meeting. And peace out. Job yeah. is over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Three kilometers. No, no, no. Mr. Mr. Sutomo Yamaguchi. Yeah, yeah was three kilometers from Ground Zero in Hiroshima right. on a business trip. Right, and he was there on a business trip, and he was, you know, but he wasn't peace out, Josh. He was like, hey, I, I still have a job to do. And so he spends the night in Hiroshima, and then he's like, oh, I'd better get back home. Where does he live but Nagasaki? <laughs> this man, I'm not kidding, was just going about his life. <laughs> so, First officially recognized survivor of both bombings. Uh, How old was he when he died? <laughs> you tell him. 93. 93! And in case you're thinking this was back then, no, he died January 4th, 2010 yeah. of stomach cancer, which was probably still radiation related. <laughs> well, no more. But... It may not have been. Stomach cancer is quite common in Japan because of the smoked fish that they eat. This man was burned twice, Josh. He should have died very early in life. And he basically lived the life of any normal Japanese dude and exceeded their life expectancy by 20 years. So let's talk about what he would have experienced along with everyone else. So acute radiation sickness or atomic bomb disease. As we said earlier, the severity depends on the level of exposure. So a dose as low as 0.35 grays or, you know, about, what did we say, one banana? 
a couple of bananas. <laughs> Two banana, three banana, four? <laughs> I think it's more banana than that. With a dose as low as 35 grays, you could feel a little bit like you have the flu. Some nausea, vomiting, headaches, fatigue, very, very nonspecific symptoms. But sure. if the body's exposed to a higher dose, somewhere between one to four grays, the first thing, the first system to be affected is blood cells. So blood cells can die. You can lose your marrow. Uh, treatment of this kind of radiation syndrome usually involves transfusions and antibiotics with a weakened immune response. Interestingly, these are the same kinds of levels of radiation that are used traditionally in radiotherapy for cancer. Right. So we're talking about cells that are used to, quote-unquote, turning over very often. They divide very aggressively so that they're constantly replenishing. So a red blood cell will make its way to maturity over the course of about three months. And then in three months, it'll die and it needs to be replaced by another red blood cell. White cells live for anywhere between, you know, days to weeks, especially when they're fighting infection, with a few rare exceptions that can last a lot longer. But the cells that have the highest turnover are in your uh, in your bone marrow just like you mentioned Josh in, in the lining of your gut because it's constantly being kind of shaved off as you eat and digestion is going on and they need to be replenished and then the cells of your liver so these are the cells that if they get damaged by radiation and what we mean here by damage is that that ionizing radiation literally shatters the DNA. As those cells, you know, that are used to dividing and dividing and replenishing and turning itself over constantly, if the reserve pool is depleted... So, one to four grays, which, again, we're looking at almost a literal truckload worth of bananas, if not more. Right. You can start getting the hematopoietic symptoms. Between four and eight grays, a dose can be fatal, but the way you die will depend on the level of exposure. So people at this level will suffer vomiting, diarrhea, dizziness, fever. You could die a few weeks after the exposure. This is where Mr. Double Hibakusha should have been. Yeah, he really, really should have. And the thing that happens is the uh, inner lining cells of the intestines are, you know, they, those are the ones that get affected. When the the replenishing cells die, um, the the lining of the intestines can't replenish itself. So you, you get horrible diarrhea and bloody diarrhea. And that is when bacteria can escape into your bloodstream. And the fevers likewise come from a lack of uh, immune cells. We call neutropenic fever because the neutrophils drop down. The physicist Louis Sloten, who died of acute radiation symptom during his research on the Manhattan Project, was accidentally exposed to a radiation dosage about 10 grays worth of gamma and x-ray radiation. People who exposed to that amount experience nausea and diarrhea within an hour and die between two days and two weeks after exposure. I mentioned Louis Sloten because not only was he head of biophysics, radiobiology, and one of the first American citizens to die of acute radiation poisoning, he was also... Santosh, do you want to... Do you want to tell me his favorite level of expertise? So eloquent. <laughs> this was one of my favorite lines, and I think you taught it to me. And it goes, 
I really wanted to leave, but there weren't enough bomb putter togethers. He said, I am one of the few people left at Los Alamos who is an experienced bomb putter togetherer. <laughs> that makes me so happy. Direct quote. Yeah. Uh, Absorbed doses greater than 10 grays will lead to a GI syndrome. Survival is extremely unlikely. And again, because destructive changes in the GI tract and the bone marrow cause infection, dehydration, electrolyte imbalance, you got about two weeks to live from that point. Over 30 grays will cause neurological damage, leading to severe vomiting, diarrhea, dizziness, headaches, and coma within minutes. Then, seizure, tremors, loss of muscle function, and death within 48 hours. Wow. Yeah. So those are the three symptoms, the blood, the gut, and the brain, depending on how much radiation you're exposed to and absorb. So what are the stages of each of these? Well, the initial stage is a prodromal, nausea, vomiting, a little bit of diarrhea occurring within minutes to days following exposure. Right. This is your gastrointestinal Depending on the exposure. This is your gastrointestinal tract, mm-hmm. tract not shutting down. Right. Now, once you get up and above 10 grays, you enter the latent stage or the walking ghost phase of radiation. So called because you are truly a dead man walking. It's a period of apparent health that lasts for hours or days following a megadose of radiation. Right. The reason for this apparent recovery, or while people are walking around looking, feeling great, is the lag time of the effects of radiation poisoning to surface. So bone marrow's been destroyed, there's been death of many rapidly multiplying cells, but you have to wait for the productive lining of the gut to be pooped out. Right. And then you get sepsis. You lose the inability or you lose the ability to absorb nutrition from food because your whole gut is dead. And similarly, you lose the ability to fight off infection because your, your whole immune system has been wiped out. Right. Your white blood cell factory in the middle of your bones. So most patients who do not recover will die within several months of exposure. Now, a key, a key fact I want to point out is when we use radiation therapy for cancer – we are not just turning on the incredible Hulk gamma beam <laughs> and hoping yeah, for the best. Yeah, yeah. We're not bombarding you from every direction, exactly. And this is not a chemo episode, so we're not going to go into it. But in radiation therapy, we use something called fractionated doses. So there's a large total dose, but delivered in small daily amounts over a period of time. So we may say you need to receive a total of eight grays. But rather than give it to you all at once, we're going to give you 0.5 of a gray every three days for the next six months. Right. So they're less effective at causing acute radiation sickness, even though you're still getting the same overall amount of radiation. Right. And we're talking about like 8 million bananas right now. Right. Remember, 35 million bananas are a lethal dose. Right. You'd really have to slip up to eat that many bananas. <laughs> Um, so I went on to the FEMA site just to look and say, okay, we've talked a lot about what a radiation lethal dose is, but what can you tolerate and recover from? All right. 
So what? Obviously less than less than thirty five million bananas. So we're, are we talking about like a third of that or a half of that? So remember, we said one banana is one micro sievert. Right. So one. So that's a, it's a ten to the negative six. Right. One million. Yeah. yeah. So how many bananas would make up one sievert? So yeah, like a million bananas. Yeah. Right. So according to FEMA. An adult can tolerate and recover from an exposure of up to 1.5 sieverts or one and a half million bananas. Okay. All right. So not too bad. So that's over a week. Okay. Or up to three sieverts or three million bananas over a four-month period. Okay. So we're we're still talking about like acute – to like middle radiation sickness from the initial dose, not the like long term effects. Right. right. So if you're exposed, if you get to your fallout shelter, you know, and are exposed to less than 1.5 sieverts over yeah. a week, you'll be sick, but you can recover. Gotcha. If you're a Japanese worker, you know, cleaning out the Fukushima right. plant and you're going in and out over a four month period and you're exposed to three sieverts or less, again, you can be expected to recover. Not flawlessly, but you'll recover. So what if you take those three sieverts and put it back over a week? So like instead of four months, Mm. you... So uh, you're saying like amount over the period of time matters. Right. Right. Absorb dose. That's the takeaway here. How much are you absorbing right, over right, time? Right. Okay. So if you took those three sieverts and you put it back like over a week, there you're going to die. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Or, se- or become severely yeah. sick without access to a hospital. You know, exposure to only 0.3 sieverts or 0.7 sieverts over a week will cause minor sickness, but a full recovery would be expected with no lasting gotcha, effects. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So the problem is radioactive fallout decays rapidly. So staying in a shelter with proper shielding is critical, especially over that first week to month period of any hypothetical nuclear okay, attack. Okay, so you've survived like a sublethal dose, and you know the fallout is coming, and that's the particles that are decaying and, and emitting radioactive uh, radiation. And you know the fallout's kind of being sprinkled around by that jet stream that you mentioned. Um, but you're staying mm-hmm. in your shelter. So then how do you calculate how long you stay in your shelter before the decay is gone? You use what's known as the 710 right. rule. Not 711. <laughs> no, the 711 rule will kill you. Yeah. So the 710 rule is for every sevenfold increase in time after the initial blast, there is a tenfold decrease in the radiation okay. rate. So, for example, a 500 radiation level can drop to 50R in just seven hours and to 5R after two days. So in other words, if you have shelter with good shielding and you stay put for even just seven hours, you have drastically increased your chances of survival. Okay, very nice. Okay, so if you have some idea of what the initial fallout is, you can kind of back calculate what it will be in like multiples of seven hours. Right. This is why a radio is so helpful to have. Not only because you can listen to fascinating podcasts like Travel Medicine while you're locked up in your bunker. <laughs> Available on iTunes. But if, <laughs> uh, 
But if you also know where the center was, you can calculate how far you are from the fallout and extrapolate the radioactive decay. And this is even with just basic high school level math. You don't need to be a nuclear physicist to figure this out. What if you live in a city like, I don't know, Chicago, where <laughs> there's not a lot of fallout shelters? Sure, yeah. What can you do to protect yourself? Well, you look for a multi-story building or a high-rise, and you go to the center of the middle section of the building, above the ninth floor if possible. Okay, all right, so higher, now, higher the better. Avoid the first floor, since fallout will pile up on the ground right. outside, and... If a rooftop of a building next to you is on the same floor, move one floor up or down because you don't want the breeze carrying all the fallout from the neighboring got you, roof. Got you. And to you're where you certainly are. not in a cage that's protected from the radiation. You're not in anything like lead lined. Being in- right. You're still trying to require, rely on the concrete and the steel to provide at least minimal got you, shielding. Got you. All right. So we're safe. But we're hurt from, like, the acute radiation poisoning. Next, let's move on to what supplies should you have with you. And again, if you don't have an emergency kit or a bug-out bag or whatever you choose to call it, you know, a zombie apocalypse (laughs) backpack, what are things that you want? And we've talked about this with Master of Disaster Ernesto Noblejas in the previous episodes. But if a full emergency preparedness kit isn't handy, like if you were on public transit to or from work, Grab a few items, nothing that would delay you taking shelter from fallout by more than a couple minutes. So item number one, radio. Hand cranked with a USB charging port that can power other devices. Why? That's going to give you information. Where is the fallout? Where is the bomb? When is it safe to come out? Second, you want water. Ideally, one gallon per person per day, and that's according to the U.S. Ready.gov. Now, I know that radioactive particles like fallout can land in like water reservoirs and stuff like that. Is there anything we can do to avoid that? Cap your water source and Gosh. hope for the best, okay. unfortunately. If you have chlorinated pills, that may help a little bit, but there's really nothing that can clean radiation out of okay, water. Okay, what about the potassium, iodine, and all that other crap? Third... Grab a breakfast bar or two to stave off the hunger a little bit. You know, you're not you when you're hungry. Things that are packaged in plastic and paper, um, you know, alpha and beta particles can hurt you. So at least the paper covering will protect some stuff from like alpha radiation. You mentioned Santosh, like what about potassium iodine pills? And the reasoning behind this is supposed to be one of the parts of your body that will get, that's at risk for cancer is your thyroid. Uh, gland underneath your neck, which kind of the the hormones that it secretes uh, takes care of your met- your resting metabolic state. Um, it's an important one, and it utilizes iodine to make thyroxine. And so, if you replace iodine, like if you flood your body with iodine, the radioactive iodine won't actually go to your thyroid and cause cancer. The U.S. military and even a number of survival experts say that. This wouldn't be very useful in the initial 48 to 72 hours. A lot of people think of this potassium iodide as like an anti-radiation right. drug. Yep. It's not. <laughs> it's not. Right. A, it's, it is preventing, it's not an invisible shield that you can swallow. <laughs> right. It's for preventing the uptake of radio iodine only. That's only one 
radionuclide out of thousands of radionuclides that are out there. So everything is still laced with radiation. It's maybe like 0.2% of the overall exposure that you're facing if you're outdoors. It's more helpful for addressing long-term concerns about food supply contamination. So when you're out in a Mad Max kind of world, sure, then it's going to be handy to protect you. But in that initial fallout period, not Well, you know, Josh, we are living in a Mad Max world, and I am a Mad Max girl or guy. (laughs) Thank you, Madonna. Madonna. (laughs) Now that we know kind of the immediate steps to take in a fallout. Let's talk about post-apocalyptic survival. Right. Assuming hospitals are still standing, <laughs> go there. But if they're not, some basic safety tips to keep in mind. Wounds. Only apply pressure dressings to stop bleeding unless an artery has been cut, like by a blast-hurled piece right. of glass. If blood is spurting from a wound, give a pressure dressing and a tourniquet. But you're going to want to loosen the tourniquet about every 15 minutes to allow enough blood to reach the flesh beyond the tourniquet and keep it alive. There's a good chance that clotting under the pressure dressing will stop blood loss before it becomes fatal. This is basic wound care for, I mean, this could be any blast, not just a nuclear blast, right? What if the wound gets infected? This is kind of interesting because the the common kind of knowledge or, you know, the, the you'd say common wisdom would be to put on clean dressings and then change the dressings somewhat frequently, like twice a day or, you know, maybe once a day at least. But the truth of the matter is with a radiation burn, white blood cells are going to, you know, try to reach the burn as soon as possible. And any infected areas, like if you do get caught by like shrapnel or or flying pieces of debris. So interestingly, you want to allow, you know, on your skin at least, not deep wounds, but on your skin, you want the pus to be able to get there. You don't want to change the dressing once you put it on to protect it at all. As far as any other infections that come along, if you're exposed to the type of radiation that we talked about when we were talking about like in the order of like a million bananas or so, you know, coming up to 10 million bananas and your bone marrow is depleted, you want to be able to get antibiotics as soon as possible. If you deplete your white cell pool by changing the dressings every single time, it sounds counterintuitive. It sounds weird. You're actually going to be more prone to infection. Especially because with the destruction of any bone marrow, your body's not going to be producing enough white blood cells to replace what you're losing. Similarly, with burns, Santoshi mentioned radiation dermatitis. So do not apply grease or oil or any no, medicine no, no neosporin jelly, to the burned area not, just cover the area with a clean dry dressing right. and leave yep. it and then give it about two weeks before you right. change the dressing what about cancer you know you're exposed to radiation only two things happen you get an <laughs> x-men level superpower or cancer. Right. the large radiation doses that many survivors receive would result in some serious long-term risks from cancer, but the lifetime risks are not as bad as most people believe. Even studying the Hibakusha in Japan, there are a number of people who live for months to decades before dying. So cancer is definitely in play, but it is not going to be what is likely to kill you, at least in the immediate first couple months to even year. 
after an right. Interference. Those cells which turn over quickly, such as white blood cells, these suffer DNA damage. A lot of these are going to die, but many of them, the DNA damage will cause mutations which can lead to cancer. Thing, we don't have a very good handle on what the risk is per dose of developing certain types of malignancies. So, um, you know, for instance, you mentioned the stomach cancer for, for Mr. Yamaguchi. Um, stomach cancer, you know, is correlated with eating smoked fish, you know, way too often. So he died from something that's quite common in Japan, even without any radiation exposure. Um, so here we have a man who was twice exposed to massive doses of radiation and didn't develop any malignancy, which seems to be related to the radiation. And we have many others who succumbed very, very quickly. So there seems to be an interplay that's we don't quite understand between the radiation dose and like the susceptibility of the host. Yeah. That's our episode on radiation yeah. sickness. Hopefully we'll never on, have to we use it. We on a down note, Josh. We... But, okay. well, <laughs> we have to do a just a tip. And also, I'm bananas. A banana. <laughs> <laughs> bananas in pajamas are coming. That's one of my daughter's favorite songs. And now every time I think of it, I'm going to think of radiation poisoning. <laughs> Well, what would be a perfect just the tip for a whole episode uh, about radiation sickness? What's what's a good themed place to travel? Recommended as a uh, core of oh excellence my God. Are you by TripAdvisor to Chernobyl. I am gonna send people to Chernobyl. Why? Why? It is one of the most photographed cities ever since the 1986 meltdown, and there are both public tours for groups and private tours for photographers where they will take you into the exclusion area. Now, I went to the trouble of reading through these extensively. It's about two hours north of Kiev, the capital in Ukraine. And they take a two to three hour trip around the city during which you are forbidden (laughs) to eat, touch, uh, oh, that sounds like or even fun. sit down on the ground. <laughs> By doing this, the total external dose obtained during the usual 10-hour trip into the zone is smaller or equivalent to that received during a transatlantic flight. And they actually do a really good job of explaining here is the radiation particles that you are likely to be exposed to, here are the likely effects, and here is your body is breaking them down. And in fact, I got a lot of our information from our episode today from their <laughs> tourism site. I'm sure they're very, very well informed. I got to tell you, though, even as us humans are kind of scared of Chernobyl and we're protecting ourselves, which we darn well should, the wildlife around there is thriving. A one-day tour is as cheap as 115 <laughs> U.S. dollars. That's, that's, a, that's a deal. That's Fine. A deal. Yeah, that's a deal. Yeah, you can't. You can't. That's a deal. You get, uh-huh. you get to go see the abandoned Ferris wheel, schools, and interestingly enough, for all that we're concerned, there's still a population of about 50 to 60 people who live <laughs> inside the exclusion zone well, against the recommendations of their government. Again, while I cannot endorse this, I will tell you, 
I'm a bit of a risk taker. And the idea that I could be walking around in Chernobyl as yeah, just a general yeah, tourist true. attraction. It's like the catacombs. I think is worth it just a tip. So there's several tour firms that will permit people to head into the exclusion zone, a 30-kilometer radius of contaminated lands. And again, there's even hotels inside the exclusion zone. And leaving the site, you have body scanners, the alarm sounds, oh, okay. guards will sweep right, you for radioactive dust. Precaution. Those of you with the, I haven't uh, made it there yet. with the risk tastes of our wonderful Dr. Josh, off you go. Welcome back, I should say. Our fourth season of Travel Medicine Podcast. Thank you to all our listeners. <laughs> we love you, you guys. guys so- As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. Yeah. <laughs> the help. <laughs> with a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories. Thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.